Welcome to a 2018 Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Dr. Nancy Chevrolati, Director of Neuropsychology and Neuroscience and Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. Dr. Chevrolati will be presenting cognitive functioning in individuals with spinal cord injury. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Thursday, January 11, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Nidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health, and Human Services. Let's listen in. I am particularly excited to see so many therapists here, both from inpatient and outpatient. And the reason for that is I think this topic is extremely pertinent to your work. And I think as we move through talking more about cognition and spinal cord injury, I think you'll see the pertinence and hopefully you'll be able to think about how it might impact the work that you do every day. So I'm going to start by talking about cognition, defining cognition, and the cognitive domains that we talk about in neuropsychology and neuroscience. I normally don't begin that way in a traumatic brain injury lecture or a multiple sclerosis presentation, but I think given the diversity of everyone's backgrounds, we all should get on the same page in terms of the terminology that we're using. Then I'll go on to talk about spinal cord injury and cognitive functioning, what's been found in the literature, as well as what we're founding in our work here at Kessler Institute and Kessler Foundation. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the potential sources of cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury. And that's really an area of research that we've started focusing in on. Because if you know the source of the deficit, you can be much more efficient at treating that deficit. So that's the motivation behind that work. So first to begin with defining cognition. If you look cognition up in a dictionary, um, the definition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. It's a huge area, so it's very general. It includes conscious and unconscious. It includes concrete as well as abstract. And actually, in neuropsychological assessment, we test both concrete cognition and more abstract reasoning. And it's both intuitive and conceptual. So if you think about everything you do in your daily life, it includes some aspect of cognition. Cognition includes the concepts of knowledge, attention, memory, judgment and evaluation, reasoning and computation, problem solving and decision making, as well as comprehension and language production. So everything that you're doing, cognition is part of that. Cognition uses existing knowledge, but it also generates new knowledge. So you need to have an understanding and a knowledge of the past, both in terms of your own experience and the world around you. But you also need to be thinking about, you are always encoding new knowledge into your brain and you're always, your cognition is always 
taking new knowledge and assimilating it into what you already know. So it's a very dynamic, ongoing process. It changes all the time. We rely on cognition every single day for everything we do. And you'll see as I discuss more cognition in SEI, you'll see that some cognition is much more basic, much things that you're much less aware of. And then there are other aspects of cognition that are very intentional and more high level. So cognition is central to who we are and what we do with our lives. So in thinking about cognition and why it's so important, it's important to think about the impact of cognition on everyday life. And there's a lot of research looking at the impact of cognition on daily life. Our measurements of daily life are still limited. That's something that we're working on here, trying to develop better measures of everyday life. But we know that cognitive deficits lead to depression and anxiety. We know they lead to decreased participation in society. That's in multiple patient populations. It's a huge problem in traumatic brain injury. We know cognitive deficits increase our rates of unemployment, and it's a barrier to persons who have disabilities getting back to work. We also know that cognitive deficits can lead to a decrease in overall quality of life. Now, specifically in spinal cord injury, there is a decent amount of research that's been done on cognition in spinal cord injury over the years. In the literature, cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury are associated with less functional gains during rehabilitation. It's associated with more aggressive behaviors. Someone who has a cognitive impairment may have a higher likelihood of rehospitalization. And then they also may have limited acquisition of novel day-to-day skills, things that are required for community integration. So what we see overall is a negative impact on rehabilitation efforts, both inpatient on an inpatient basis and on an outpatient basis. We also see reduced social integration when people present with cognitive deficits. And this is all associated with a decrease in quality of life and poor self-perception. So these cognitive deficits are having an impact on the person as a whole. Now, when we think about a population like traumatic brain injury, cognitive deficits are something we immediately think about. It's fairly obvious. We see it in the patients that we treat. It's a lot more subtle in spinal cord injury. However, and this is what I want to impress upon you, Despite the fact that these cognitive deficits are more subtle in in spinal cord injury, they are there and they're having a substantial impact on rehabilitation and everyday life. So when you talk to patients with spinal cord injury, they also report that they have decreased cognitive functioning from before to after injury. Now when you're discussing cognition with patients, if you say, do you have a cognitive problem, Very few of them will just say yes. That's not the terminology that the lay public generally uses. But what they do say is they'll say, I learn things more slowly. They'll say, I have difficulty remembering things. Sometimes they'll say, I have trouble following along in conversations or in a a movie that's, that I'm trying to watch, I may have trouble focusing. Those are the kinds of things that they, that they report. And it's incumbent upon the clinicians to think about what they really mean and how we can best address that. So what? Um, this is an important question when it comes to cognitive functioning because these deficits are subtle. Um, but when we, what we have seen in the literature, what we've seen in our research here at the foundation, is when you have a cognitive deficit, um, it's, it significantly impacts your career productivity. And your career may slow down or it may even stop. 
Physical and cognitive impairments lead to early retirement in multiple populations. And when you talk to patients, they identify processing speed deficits and memory deficits as the major obstacle to maintaining employment. So what does this mean? This means that first, we have to identify cognitive deficits when they present themselves, and we have to treat them effectively. So now that's, a two, that's two, two prongs that I just said, and I kind of went over it really quickly. The first step is really, really important, and much of what the cognitive rehabilitation literature has done is it's jumped to treatment. It happens in traumatic brain injury. It started to happen in MS, although I think we're kind of cir circling back now. Um, and it could very well happen in any population. The first step has to be identification. You have to figure out what you're dealing with in order to treat it effectively. And that is still something that we're grappling with in spinal cord injury. The study of cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury is still fairly new, particularly when you compare it to traumatic brain injury or, multi or multiple sclerosis. What that means is we really need to focus in on that first step, identify what's going on in terms of cognition, and the differences between different subgroups and how that might impact future treatment. So looking at the different cognitive domains, these are the cognitive domains that we generally talk about in neuropsychology. Attention, working memory, processing speed, visual spatial processing, long-term memory, and executive functioning. So when you think about attention, you, that's fairly obvious, paying attention to, to a lecture. Um, paying attention for a sustained period of time. There are several different types of attention, so there are different types of attention you can test. But it's a fairly basic, easily understandable construct. Working memory is a little bit more complicated, so working memory builds upon attention, and instead of simply paying attention and processing what you're listening to, you, that's one step of working memory. The second step of working memory is then manipulating that information and using that information. Processing speed interacts with working memory in that now processing speed looks at how fast you're doing these things, what, how much information you can process within a circumscribed period of time. Visual spatial processing is also a little bit more easily understandable because it's being able to process stimuli that you see and understand it accurately. Now, if you think about visual spatial processing, Think about everything you do in, a in your daily life and how important that is to your daily life. So if you're reading a passage and you perceive an open parenthesis as a closed parenthesis, that's going to completely disrupt your understanding of that passage. If you're driving and you perceive a red, the red light versus a green light, you can get into a fatal car accident. So we're talking about a subtle cognitive deficit that ha can have a substantial impact on your daily life. Long-term memory is a very complicated construct that starts at attention. And I'm going to show you a figure to explain that a little further, because it has a significant impact on rehabilitation. But with long-term memory, what you're doing is you are taking information, you're encoding it into your memory to remember later, and then you're pulling that information out later. So you're talking about three different stages. You're talking about initially acquiring the information, initially learning that information. The second stage is consolidation, where you're laying the foundation and you're letting that memory become hard, similar to like the foundation of a house as you're letting co concrete harden. And then the third stage is being able to retrieve that information later. 
gets more complicated, and I'll get into that in a minute, because it, we also have procedural memory and declarative memory, and that complicates the picture a little bit more. And then there's executive functioning. So executive functioning is often thought of as what makes us human. It's planning, it's problem solving, it's abstract reasoning. Um, reasoning through a problem, coming up with an appropriate solution. When it doesn't work, going back to the beginning and trying a different approach. Those are all aspects of executive functioning, which is a very um, high, it's of higher order cognitive functioning. It's one of the most complicated things that we do. Finally, intelligence. It, intelligence is not itself a cognitive domain. Rather, it's a culmination of other cognitive abilities. We look at intelligence as a, um, a window through which a person develops their other cognitive skills. So someone's we look at intelligence as a benchmark. So this is where that patient should be performing. Yet their processing speed is all the way down here. And we would expect that processing speed to be much more consistent with their intelligence. So that's how we use intelligence in neuropsychological assessment and in understanding rehabilitation. Um, rehabilitation. So this is the image that I was referring to earlier that I said I would show you. My colors are actually not great, but they're better up here. So if you look all the way on the left of the screen, you see attention. That's the basic, basic cognition. The most basic aspect of cognition is attention. You move on to the next area, and you have processing speed, working memory, visual spatial processing, all happening simultaneously as we look at different stimuli and we process different information. Over on the right, you see executive functionings and learning and memory. The reason executive functions and learning and memory are over here is because they're the higher order aspects of cognition. What that means in terms of rehabilitation is that if you see a deficit in either one of these areas, if you see that someone's having trouble learning and remembering information, Yes, they may have a learning and memory problem that you have to treat, and you have to give them a cognitive rehabilitation protocol that focuses in on learning and memory, or a medication that improves learning and memory. However, if you have a deficit anywhere over here, including executive functions, they could present as learning and memory, a learning and memory problem. And that's why it's so important for someone to actually have a broad-based neuropsychological assessment, because just identifying a learning and memory problem is not enough. And that's how all these constructs interact, and I'll get back to that later. So let's talk specifically about SCI now that I've given you a little bit of background. In the literature, cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury have been noted in attention, in concentration, in new learning and memory, and I separate those constructs out. New, I separate out new learning from memory because it's actually a very different skill. When we think of memory, we think of recalling information, but the new learning part of it is actually very important. They, we have seen deficits in abstract reasoning, in verbal learning, and in processing speed. And this is true even in relatively young SCI co cohorts. So we're talking about folks that are 28 to 45 years old, presumably in the prime of their lives, Highly, um, highly promising to get back to work, to get back to a very full quality of life. And if we're seeing these deficits in cognition, that can have a substantial impact on their ability to do that. So we've been conducting 
research in cognition and spinal cord injury now probably for about five years. So it's actually relatively recent compared to many of the other populations we work with. And I see a lot of my collaborators in the room, so I just want to, um, I just want to recognize them, and I apologize if I miss anybody in the room, but Jill Wacht is over there by the door. Um, I actually started this because Jill came to me and said we want to start looking at cognition and SDI, so I give her all the credit for all the data that we've, um, that we've accumulated because she's really pushed this forward. Um, Caitlin is right there. Caitlin's one of our research coordinators as well as Alex. Um, and then we have Trevor right here in the front. Everybody knows Trevor. If it wasn't for Trevor, we wouldn't even be able to do any of this work because he is a huge facilitator of actually being able to submit these grants and getting this work done. So I just want to make sure everybody realizes that this really is a team approach. I just happen to be the neuropsychologist on the team. So our data is showing a very similar pattern to what we're seeing in the literature in terms of the overall cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury. We're seeing a deficit in new learning and memory. We're seeing a deficit in processing speed. And then we're also seeing a deficit in cognitive flexibility, which has some executive functioning, some working memory components to it. So looking at the first study that we completed, we had 60 persons with spinal cord injury and 50 healthy controls, um, and that's the age and education breakdown. On the bottom, you see the level of injury for the spinal cord injury folks. We had um, C1 through 8, there was an N of 31, T1 through 5, an N of 6, and then T6 and below, was, there was an N of 23. So fairly decent representation across the, um, the different levels of injury. When you look at the group overall, what we see is that 63.33% of the patients are showing cognitive deficits. That's a huge number. What that means is two of every three spinal cord injury patients that you guys are working with are having some problems in cognition. And that's something that we need to start recognizing a little bit better. When we talk about, to define this, this is performance at least one standard deviation below healthy controls on two or more cognitive tests. So it's not only a, a difficulty with a new, one new learning memory test or one attention test, it's two or more cognitive tests. When we look by cognitive domain, these are the three things that really stick out. We see 35% are having new learning and memory problems. 63% are having difficulties in processing speed. Processing speed, again, is processing a certain amount of information, how much information you can process in a circumscribed period of time. So if I give you 30 seconds to do a task, how far, a relatively simple task, how far can you get through that task? And we expect people to move at a fairly rapid pace. That varies with age and intelligence, but we do expect people to move at a fairly rapid pace, particularly in New Jersey. Um, then we move on and we have executive functioning working memory problems in 57% of, of the patients that we see. So that's not very different from what's out there in the literature. Um, that's something that has been observed over the years. One thing that we're, try we're trying to, to take some new approaches, try to move the field forward and begin to address some of the issues that these folks are having. So one of the things that we've been doing is trying to break down new learning and memory. So on the next slide I'll show you, we have one trial learning. Now thinking about new learning and memory, those of you who are familiar with the neuropsychological assessment will know that we torturously go through five trials of a learning test, so we'll read you 16 words, five times. After each trial, we ask you to tell us as many words as you can remember. 
So you have five trials to learn these 16 words. It's a fairly decent amount of time. That's not what happens in real life. In real life, it's a one-shot deal. You hear the information, you either remember it or you don't, and your functioning is impacted by whether or not you remember that information. That's much more like one trial learning, and that's why we look at one trial learning. That's why we look at that first trial. The second is learning over repeated trials, what I had just described. Now, learning over repeated trials is more similar to what someone would experience in a learning in an academic setting, someone who might be going back to college. Could be someone who's starting a new job, because generally when you're learning things, even in a new job, it's repeated several times for you to make sure you understand it. We're looking at recall after different delays. In reality, when you're given information, you may have to recall that information immediately, but you also have to recall that information perhaps a day later, a week later, three years later, five years later. Does that delay make it, have an impact on whether or not you can remember that information? Finally, we're looking at procedural learning. That's not something neuropsychologists often look at. So this is kind of a somewhat of a new area for me. Um, because when we talk about procedural learning, we're talking about motor learning, something that's very important to daily functioning, particularly in someone who has a spinal cord injury and might need to learn a new transfer technique, um, might need to learn different exercises to help improve their mobility or maintain um, their strength. So these are, these are things that motor learning is something that's very important to this particular population. Another approach that we've been applying is neuroimaging. Interestingly, there are no neuroimaging studies of the brain in the literature in persons who have spinal cord injury. We have the first pilot data to, to demonstrate that, and I'll be showing you a few pilot, some, some pilot data on that in a minute. And then finally, we're looking at role of level of injury. That's not something that they look have been looked at. It has been looked at in the in the literature to date. In the literature to date, they're looking at spinal cord injury versus able-bodied. They're not looking at um, levels of injury and how that might impact cognition. So just to talk a little bit about the learning and memory performance, these are all significant differences. Although I forgot my little asterisks. Um, but if you look at trial one, trial one, again, directly comparable to an everyday learning situation. You have a one-shot deal. Here's your 16 words. How many of them do you remember? In spinal cord injury, we see significantly poorer performance than in healthy controls. Delayed free recall. How much do you remember after a 30-minute delay? Free recall meaning, I read you a list of words. What do you remember? Again, significant difference between the groups. Delayed cued recall. Now that means I read you, within my list of words, I read you fruits. What fruits do you remember? So I'm cueing you to help you try to remember that information. Again, significant difference between SCI and controls. The SCI, persons with SCI are having trouble doing these tasks. And then finally, total learning is learning across all five trials. And again, we see a significant difference between the two groups. So across the board, persons with spinal cord injury are having trouble learning and remembering new information. I wanted to demonstrate why this is important, and that's evident in these correlations. If you look at the, on the top, you ha have CVLT measures. So this is long delay free recall. So how many words can you remember after 30 minutes of lie? This is recognition discriminability. What that means is I'm going to read you a word, and you're going to tell me whether or not I read it to you. So do you remember this word or not? So it's more of a recognition format. And on the left side of the screen, you see various scales within the SCI qual, so quality of life, aspects of quality of life. 
And what you're seeing is on the eight um, correlations, six of the eight are significant. So we're seeing significant relationships between memory functioning and overall quality of life in these patients. I don't think I said this, these are outpatients with, with uh, spinal cord injury, so they can be anywhere from one year post-injury to 20 or plus years post-injury. Most of the cohort is right around 10 years, uh, probably six to 10 years post-injury. So implicit learning, as I mentioned earlier, is not something that we've traditionally done here. We did have a scientist visit over the summer, Ellie Vakil from Israel, who really turned us on to looking at implicit procedural learning in the spinal cord injury population. And this is one of the studies that he did. He looked at 10 persons with SCI, T1 to T11. These were all acute. And then he looked at 10 healthy control participants, and he looked at a serial reaction time task. So it was a very simple task where he presented stimuli, and they had to react to that stimuli based on where it was in their visual fields. And it examines motor sequence learning. <clears throat> so what we would expect to see in a healthy population is shown in blue. We would expect that it would take more time on the first trial to do the task, and less time with each subsequent trial to trial six. That's what we would expect to see because we implicitly learn how to do the task over time. We did not show that, they did not show that in spinal cord injury. They saw no decline in reaction, in reaction time over time, whereas the healthy control group, they did show it. So what this, now there were no, in this particular cohort, there were no differences on any other cognitive measures. So this means, this is something that you rely on in, um, in rehabilitation, in physical therapy and occupational therapy, this is one of those aspects of the memory system that you're relying on every single day. And that's due to the emphasis on motor learning. Motor learning is a very, um, and, and implicit procedural learning are very highly intertwined. So what that means is if you have this deficit in a rehab setting, that's going to substantially limit your ability to improve through rehabilitation. Now this is a preliminary study, largely due to the small sample size. They also included only acute patients, and despite the fact that a lot of the rehabilitation happens right here, when they're immediately post-injury, as we all know, rehabilitation goes on for years. There's a long outpatient stint, people will come back to outpatient later. They'll have to learn things in their daily life that will rely on this motor learning. So this is something that we really need to try to focus in on and understand what's happening in an effort to improve it. So we do have a study currently under review that will look at implicit motor learning in more chronic patients with SCI. Moving on a little bit to talk about neuroimaging, and that this is actually connected to this study because neuroimaging is one of the outcomes that we will be using in our attempt to understand the motor learning a little bit more. But neuroimaging has really not been used to examine cognition post-TBI with the exception of our pilot data. So what we did in our pilot study is we conducted fMRI of the brain during an explicit memory task. By explicit, I mean I, we gave them something to remember when they were in their scanner and we were imaging while they were learning that information. What we found is that on a recognition memory test, persons with paraplegia performed more poorly than healthy controls. Now this is just paraplegia. We broke them down into paraplegia and tetraplegia. In addition, they showed more activation in frontal and parietal regions, but less activation in the explicit memory region 
or the hippocampus. That's where we would expect we would expect the hippocampus to be more active during an explicit memory task, and it was less active than we would have expected. So what this is telling us is that in the group with paraplegia, new learning and memory tasks required more cerebral resources. However, and this is an important point, they performed more poorly than healthy controls. So what that's telling us is that they may have dedicated these cerebral resources to the task, but it didn't do any good. And that's important for their overall functioning. We saw the same pattern in tetraplegia, but with a processing speed task. So persons with tetraplegia performed more poorly than healthy controls on a processing speed task, and they showed more activation in frontal and motor regions than healthy controls. But again, this increased activation that they dedicated to the task didn't do any good. So it wasn't facilitating any improved functioning, which is what we really would like to see. Now that's just preliminary data. We have a lot more data. We have more data that exists. We have more data to analyze. and. We will, those will um, trigger more questions and we'll be writing more grants to try to look more at imaging in, in spinal cord injury in these various aspects of cognition to try to improve rehabilitation. So another thing to think about that has not been looked at in the literature is level of injury. And the question is, are there differences in cognition depending on the level of injury? The reason that's important, one of the reasons that's important, is because the cause of that, in, that cognitive deficit may be different depending on the level of their injury. So this study looked at um, persons with tetraplegia, persons with paraplegia, the total end there was 19. I don't break those down in the current slides. And then we looked at older controls and we looked at aged matched controls. So that aged matched control group is really important because it's that aged matched control group that tells us where these folks should be functioning. And when we compare them to that group, that's going to tell us um, where they're having the most difficulty. So looking at processing speed or working memory. So the, on the left side of the screen, you see the symbol digit modalities test. That's what SDMT stands for. That's a processing speed test. That's as basic to processing speed as we currently have available in the neuropsychological um, area. On the right, you see the PACESAT, Paced Auditory Serial Edition Test. That's a test that is purported to be a working memory test, but has a very high processing speed component. So it's a little bit of a more complicated test that involves working memory. So what we see is a significant difference. Just looking, let's start with just processing speed. The green is the spinal cord injury, folks and I intentionally put them in the middle with the older healthy controls on the right and the age match healthy controls on the left. And the reason I did that is because if you look at these graphs, particularly this one, you see that the persons with spinal cord injury look a lot more like the older healthy controls than they look like the age match controls. Now just another thing to note for those of you who may not be aware, processing speed is one of Cognition in general declines over age. I'm sorry, it starts at age 30. So that's the bad news for today. Um, but processing speed is particularly vulnerable to that. So processing speed does decline over age. Um, as age. So we do expect, we would expect this group to look like the group in blue, and they don't. They look like the group in red. On the PACESAT, we see a little bit of a different profile. Um, but also a significant difference between persons with spinal cord injury and age-match healthy controls and older healthy controls. 
Um, we see a similar pattern in terms of the California Verbal Learning Test, our memory measure. So again, over here we have our STI group in the middle on each graph, and we see a significant difference between spinal cord injury and the age match as well as the older healthy controls on total recall, short delay free recall, which is almost immediately after you administer the list, and then long delay free, free recall, which is 20 minutes later. Now looking at level of injury, um, and this is something that I'm still doing data analysis on the cognitive data. I know Jill and Caitlin are still doing data analysis on the um, cardiovascular data, which I'm not even presenting today. Um, but we do have cardiovascular data on all of these folks. So what we are finding is that when you look at them by injury level, in the paraplegic groups, we see a significant difference from older healthy controls and age match healthy controls on the CVLT. So they're showing a difference on learning measures. When you look at the processing speed, you see that difference in persons with tetraplegia and the age match healthy controls. This difference in here is not significant. So they are showing, persons with spinal cord injury are showing different patterns of the deficit based on the level of their injury. So overall, what are we seeing? We're seeing, in the overall SCI group, we're seeing deficits in new learning and memory, processing speed, and working memory. In the group with paraplegia in particular, we're only seeing those deficits show themselves in new learning and memory when we restrict our analyses. In the tetraplegia group, we're seeing those deficits in processing speed. And what I do want to point out is if you go back to the imaging data I, present, I presented earlier, it's completely in line with the behavioral data. So we're not only seeing this pattern at a behavioral level, but we're also seeing this pattern at the level of the brain. So just to talk a little bit, I know I'm out of time, just to talk a little bit about potential sources. What's contributing to this? Concomitant traumatic brain injury has been blamed in the literature since they have identified these cognitive deficits. One of the quotes that I really like was by um, Chuck, Bar I always struggle over his name, Bombardier. Um, he said in one of his articles, the number of patients reporting deficits consistent with TBI far exceeded physician-rated presence of TBI by 80% in their sample of 105 persons with SCI. What does that mean? That means that we cannot attribute all of these deficits to traumatic brain injury. Yes, some of them will be a concomitant traumatic brain injury that probably went undiagnosed because there was so much else going on in the acute care facility and so much more to address in the rehab facility that that just wasn't something that was, um, was recognized. However, that's not every patient with spinal cord injury. There has to be something else going on. So what else could it be? There could be secondary trauma as a result of cerebral edema, hypoxia, or anoxia. Um, that, of course, likely would have presented um, earlier, in the, earlier in the rehab stay, but who knows, maybe it didn't. Um, it also could be due to cardiovascular and cerebrovascular dysfunction. And that's one of the ongoing studies that we have here, um, funded by the New Jersey Commission on Spinal Cord Injury Research, and largely led by Dr. Wecht, um, in looking at the, um, the role of cerebrovascular and cardiovascular dysfunction in spinal cord injury. 
But I do want to impress upon you that there are other factors to consider. There are factors that play a role in every population that will play a role in their cognitive functioning. Sleep apnea. Sleep apnea has a substantial disruption to the sleep process. If you're not getting sleep, your cognitive functioning is not optimal the next day. That's true of all of us, but it's particularly true in a population where sleep apnea may actually be a big problem. Temperature dysregulation, which is another problem in, in spinal cord injury. Someone who has a very low temperature is having more cognitive deficits. That's something that's been in the literature. That's not something we looked at. Medications have secondary effects. What are the effects of those medications on cognition, particularly if you're taking a cocktail of a number of different medications to address different problems? This is, again, something we need to think about. So there are different methods that we're using for determining the cause. We have cerebrovascular testing ongoing during cognitive performance. We're conducting brain imaging um, using DTI and fMRI, for those of you who may be familiar with the different imaging techniques. We're also observing the trajectory of change over time. We're bringing people back in after three years and after five years to try to see how is this deficit changing over time. So there's a lot of ongoing work to do. But what do I want you to leave here remembering? I want you to remember that cognitive functioning following SCI is important to consider and that the impact can be substantial. It impacts rehabilitation efficacy, daily life functioning, social reintegration, and quality of life. And I think it's really important that people recognize the deficit when they see it and consult to be able to identify that deficit. I also want you to consider that treatment is on the horizon. Um, I know a lot of people get frustrated with cognitive deficits because we say, okay, there's a cognitive deficit and there is nothing we can do about it. But that's not the case. Um, we have been identifying more and more effective protocols to treat cognitive issues. And moving forward, this is something that we're going to be continuing address, to address and we're already addressing in spinal cord injury. So one of those studies tries to treat blood pressure and observe changes in cognition. Um, and that's the, Dr. Wecht is the PI on that one. And another um, looks at cognitive rehabilitation in persons with spinal cord injury. So we're currently doing a clinical trial that treats persons who have processing speed impairment with a processing speed protocol and treats persons who have memory impairment with a memory protocol to try to improve their cognitive functioning. So we have kind of jumped ahead to move right from identification to treatment because these studies take such a long time that we didn't want to delay the progress. Um, I do, again, want to acknowledge my collaborators, many of whom are sitting in the room, and thank them for all of their help. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.